Augustine was born in 354 AD in the province of Numidia in North Africa. His father was an unbeliever, but his mother, Monica, was a devout Christian. She would pray often for her, her son, for his salvation, but often to no avail. Augustine was often overtaken by his own lusts and wickedness. His temptations overcame him so much at one point in his life that he would leave the city of Carthage and move to Rome where he thought that he might find solace from his conscience that was often sullied. After some time, he would move from Rome back to Milan where he, in God's providence, would hear the famed preacher Ambrose. Through the preaching of Ambrose, he began to study the Scriptures, began to grow to understand his own sin and need of God's grace. Then, one afternoon, when he was 31 years old, Augustine was there in his garden and just, again, just overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. He lived a licentious life full of wickedness and rebellion against God, and he was just burdened by his brokenness and the lust of his flesh. Then he heard a voice of a young child on the other side of the portico saying, take and read, take and read. And at once he took up the scriptures and turned to Romans chapter 13, and there he read, and it was as if he had read it for the first time passage that he had studied many times before changed in his mind. Everything began to transform, and it was in that moment that he truly was transformed from death unto life. He would go on to study Scripture and eventually write a book of his own experiencing experiences called Confessions. And this particular book is probably perhaps the most famous writing of the period. Even today, students in secular universities are taken up with Augustine's writings and required to read Confessions. Here we go on also to be the famed Bishop of Hippo, where he served until his death. He was a brilliant mind who helped fight against early heresies in the church like that of Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius was a false teacher who taught that against the doctrine of original sin and the need for regeneration, or what we call being born again. Pelagius was a, a heretic, and through Augustine's writings, he was able to push back the darkness that the church was being infiltrated by and help people rightly understand the teachings of the apostles. In fact, Augustine has impacted every era of Christian history, even to today. It was Augustine's writings during the Protestant Reformation that would help inform the likes of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Erdwick Swingley as they sought to reform the church from the heresies of the Roman Catholics. Friend, have you ever considered why some do not believe? Monica prayed urgently for her son. From his birth until his conversion at 31, 
pleading with the Lord. It, it was so well known that one of the bishops commented to her once that surely no man has been prayed for as much as your son and surely his conversion will happen. Have you ever considered why some hear the same gospel but never believe? They grow up in the same church hearing the same message, the same Sunday school lessons, the same sermons. They sing the same songs but they remain blinded in their unbelief. Why is it that some who see the clear revelation of Jesus still miss Jesus? Friend, that's the question we want to think about this morning in our text. Why do some not believe? In other words, why are there barriers to belief? What are these barriers? Why do they exist and how are they overcome? You'll be reminded that Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. In this section of Luke's Gospel, it is taken up with the theme of discipleship. As Jesus traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem, He teaches His disciples how to follow Him. And Luke has compiled the material together to help Theophilus know and understand all that he has come to know and believe. And so you and I are helped as we read this gospel as Christians because we understand the multifaceted work of following after Christ. We have seen that as Christians we are to be taken up with evangelism. Last week we saw that as Christians we are to be taken up with word and prayer. But Luke seems to take an aside here for just a moment to help Theophilus And to help you with this question of why is it when I share the gospel, when I read the scriptures and I pray for lost sinners that some do not believe? Why was it that so many were opposed to Jesus' message? Why do they refuse? Why is it that there are those who twist and distort the truth To suit their perverted ends, like that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Friend, we must understand and not be taken off guard, but understand the nature of unbelief, lest we too be driven to despair. So I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 11, if you've not done so already. Luke chapter 11. We're going to consider this morning verses 14 through 54. When we're covering a large section like this, we're not going to look at all the details. So this is not, you know, a Wednesday night Bible study, for example. Uh, We're we're not going to be able to just spend so much time. And so this is a 30,000 foot view. We're, We're at cruising altitude and we're looking out the window and observing, you know, those tiny little trees and those tiny little farms that are below us. And so don't grow frustrated as we move quickly through this particular passage, but Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. 
But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings even, it brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, we'll stop our reading there for a moment. We'll pick up as we move throughout. If you take notes, there's one overarching theme here in in these verses. There will always be those through their unbelief that will reject Jesus. That's an encouraging word, isn't it? That there will always be those who reject Jesus' message. That as Christians, we ought not to grow weary when we see those around us rejecting Jesus. That, That the normal experience is for people to reject Jesus, to say no to Jesus. Just as you and I, For maybe years, decades, said no to Jesus until God rescued us. And so this morning, my hope is that we understand a bit of why people reject Jesus. So that question is what we want to think about as we roll through these verses. Number one, Luke outlines, or rather, before I get to number one, there's three points that we're going to think about. Three barriers to belief. Three barriers to belief. Three main barriers that that Luke organizes here in this this text. Number one, hard-heartedness. They were hard-hearted. They demonstrated an unwillingness to think about Jesus, to reason with their minds. We see that in the story I just read of the the man who was mute. They were unwilling to, to reason together about Jesus. Then we see, secondly, They're spiritually blind. They demonstrate an unwillingness to consider the evidence or see the evidence about Jesus. And I'll read that text in just a moment. Where we see the people have the evidence right in front of them. It's clear as day. But they're unwilling to see it. They have a spiritual blindness about them. And then thirdly, we'll see the third barrier to belief is religious hypocrisy. And this perhaps is the most dangerous barrier to belief. 
in that they demonstrate an unwillingness to accept the need for Jesus. The, the need. The, the Pharisees and the lawyers, you'll see, did not need Jesus. They thought they could have a relationship with God through their own goodness. So these three barriers we'll consider. Number one, hard-hearted. Hard-hearted. We saw here that as Jesus was healing this man who was mute, for you and I who've been studying this gospel, uh, we're not surprised by Jesus' power in this moment. A man who's never spoken before in his life, a man who could not speak in in an instant, in a moment, could speak. And the crowd, they doubted. And the, the point that we ought to take away from this is that it is reasonable to believe in Jesus. Jesus uses a reasonable argument here. The people are saying, Jesus, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, the word Beelzebub is, is just sort of a slang word that they used for Satan. They're basically saying, you operate by the power of Satan. And Jesus says that makes no sense whatsoever. Why would Satan attack his own demons? Uh, No one, no army, no general, uh, no one with power and authority would attack themselves. That's why he says a house divided cannot stand. There's no way that Satan is at civil war with himself. That makes absolutely no sense. And and Jesus here goes at them and says, okay, well, wait a minute. If I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan, who do your sons cast them out by? Jesus draws a line in the sand. Jesus makes clear there there is only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's no middle way. There's no middle road. Consider reasonably before me. But more than that, we see here in this uh, text that they were seeking signs. A man who is mute speaks, and they say, Jesus, we need something else. We need a little bit more. That's not enough. We're not quite sure about you, Jesus. I mean, we get the guy couldn't speak. That was pretty cool. Does this not sound reminiscent of other stories in your Bible? Oh, perhaps even when Moses and Pharaoh were having conversations? When, when Moses was staring down the gods of the Egyptians and was performing miracle after miracle, Pharaoh's magicians were matching step by step. It is a reminder that evil exists in this world, that there's no neutrality, there's no Switzerland. We are either on one side or the other. And this is why Jesus is exposing them in this little parable, he says. He, in there in verse 21, he says that when a strong man fully armed guards his own place, his goods are safe, but when one stronger is there, In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm stronger than Satan. I have more authority and power than him. He may look quite impressive, quite strong, but I'm stronger. It ought to be all reasonable to these people. Jesus was demonstrating that he had power and authority over unclean spirits, but they, for them it was was insufficient. It was not enough. But more than that, Jesus goes on in that, parable he tells there in verses 24 and 26 
that it is quite unreasonable to doubt. He tells a parable of an unclean spirit that is removed from a man. And this unclean spirit then is, is wandering around in the desert, finding someone to possess. So Jesus' ministry is pushing back darkness. People are being delivered from demons. But unless they are filled by the Spirit, what happens? Seven other demons come and take up residence. Unbelief, he says, only makes matters worse, not better. We, we see that the quite danger, isn't it, not to believe in Jesus? This sort of hard-heartedness only leads to a greater unbelief than the one already had. That's why Jesus follows up with this saying from this woman, or Luke rather, telling what Jesus said, that this woman comes and says, blessed are those, you know, blessed is your mother. Well, clearly Jesus' mother is blessed. Mary does have a unique and special place in, in God's redemptive history, right? Not because she was perfect, but because she was God's chosen intern. So it's clearly, yeah, she was blessed in a unique way in God's plan of redemption. But Jesus says, no, 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 you misunderstand. It, it's not her that is in that particular special place, but it's those who hear the word and obey it. In other words, they believe in it. They trust in it. Obedience is a measure of belief, you see. When we obey God's word, we are believing that what it says is true and right and good. And the struggle that unbelievers have is this hard-heartedness. Will, will I continue to go my way or God's way? And we see that tension in this text. And so the question is that Jesus poses, who are you with? There are, friends, really only two ways to live. You're either on God's side or you're on Satan's side. There is no middle way. You are either with Jesus or against him. That's what he makes emphatically clear there in verse 23. Look there with me. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Are you with Jesus? Are you trying to ride some middle road? A little bit of the world and a, and a little bit of Jesus. Friend, there is only one way. You will either die in your unbelief and reject Jesus, or you will eternally live with Him in a relationship. That is the choice before us. And so hard-heartedness here in this particular text reveals an unwillingness just to consider a, a reasonableness about the facts concerning Jesus. Jesus did ministry in the open, in the eyes of everyone. He never did things in secret so that people could see and think reasonably about what he says. Friend, have you taken up to consider what Jesus has actually said about himself, about God, his Father, and then considered the evidence? Well, that naturally leads us then to the second barrier to belief, and that is spiritual blindness. They don't believe because they can't see. The evidence is right before them, but they can't understand. They can't see it. They're spiritually blind, he says. When the crowds were increasing, verse 29, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Seeks for a sign. 
but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repent at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see it. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you become darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, have no part, uh, no part dark. Having no part dark, it will then be wholly bright. And when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The point that Jesus is making here is that those who are unwilling to see his evidence had a spiritual blindness about them. They were no different than those in other generations. But notice what he does here. When the crowds were increasing, Luke says, Jesus would say his most provocative and hard things when the crowds were the largest. Jesus was anti-attractional. Uh, he detracted people. He did not want people following him for the wrong reasons. They didn't want to be caught up in the kind of excitement of his ministry, seeing these wonderful signs and wonders. But even so, they had the signs, but he says no sign will be given, but the sign of Jonah. Well, what's the sign of Jonah? Well, what happened to Jonah? Jonah disobeyed God, and we we're told that a giant fish swallowed him up, and he was in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Then he was spit out, and he went and obeyed God and, and called people to repentance and faith. And what happened to the Ninevites? They were a wicked lot. They were a sinful people. But they repented at the sign of Jonah. And this is a foreshadowing of the resurrection where Jesus is in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and bursts forth. In other words, there is no greater sign than that of the resurrection. It is the pinnacle sign for which all other signs point. That Jesus has authority and power over all things, even over death. They didn't need more signs. They had the one sign that they needed to believe. But they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't believe. Jesus has fed thousands. He has healed many. But they still did not believe. It is so true that so often you will find people who will come to you and say, I will believe if I have more evidence. If you will just prove to me that the Bible is true, that these stories really happened. If I could have only been there and seen them, then I would have believed. No, friend, you wouldn't have. There were people that literally saw limbs regrown on people's bodies and they still didn't believe. Blind men who could see, deaf who could hear, mute who could speak. Thousands fed from a few fish and a, and a couple loaves, and yet they remained in unbelief. Who is this guy? Jesus says that they are under judgment. Their blindness has brought about their own judgment. 
Uh, we heard earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so that they might not see and believe. Spiritually blind. The wicked men of Nineveh and the queen of the south sought out the truth of God. Two Gentile people. The Ninevites, Gentiles, and the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who went to see Solomon the greatest king who ruled over God's people, the most expansive kingdom, the most powerful king in the nation of Israel. And non-Jews, Gentiles, believed. Jesus is truly spitting in their face. What more evidence do you need? And that's why he goes on to tell this parable about lights and lamps. And you're thinking, what's the point of this? Well, it's quite simple, isn't it? You don't use a flashlight unless you're trying to see something, right? You don't, you don't turn on a flashlight and then put it under your bed. You don't light a, uh, you know, a flashlight and then throw it in the attic and don't actually go in the attic. Now, a, a light has purpose to illumine, but the problem was is that their eyes couldn't see the light. They had bad eyes, and so they needed new eyes to see that they could believe and trust. Jesus is warning here that unless the Spirit gives you eyes to see, you will never see. That is why we pray for illumination. To illuminate. The word means to bring light in the midst of darkness. Every Sunday we pray that God would illumine His word. Speak, O Lord, we sing. We want to see and so one of the ways that you can pray, like Monica prayed for Augustine, give him eyes to see. I plead with you, Lord, give them eyes that they might see your word and believe upon you. And let that be a regular prayer in our life, that not only for ourselves, but for those around us, that God would shine his light in the midst of darkness that they might believe. I think also we ought to take encouragement here that they rejected Jesus so they will reject us. And they did not reject Jesus out of a lack of evidence. We ought never to feel that we didn't do enough. If you have shared the gospel with somebody and told them to repent and believe in this particular truth, then you have done enough, friend. You will never argue someone into heaven. You will never be able to do that. Jesus here doesn't do that. Jesus presents the truth and leaves it to their conscience. We ought to be reminded that the sign of the resurrection is the sign. That there is no other and no greater. There are many in our own world today in, the, in this religious realm that seek to take away the resurrection. How could a man who is dead come back to life? They want a Christianity without the resurrection. Friend, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as Christianity apart from the resurrection. It is the pinnacle sign of God's victory over sin and death. It was in the resurrection that Jesus vindicated and proved to be the eternal Son who died the death we deserved and whose death was acceptable to God. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Romans that it was through the resurrection that we received justification. 
no resurrection, no justification. I wonder, friend, will you remain blind in sin or see through the Spirit that Jesus is the Christ? If you're not a Christian this morning, that is our prayer for you, that you would have eyes to see. Perhaps you think you're a Christian. Perhaps you understand yourself to have repented and believed, but your life remains the same. You remain in darkness. Our prayer is that God, by His grace, would draw you into His life. The evidence about Jesus was right before their eyes, and friend, it is right in front of you this morning. But because of their spiritual blindness, they were unable to see. They needed this illumination that they could rightly consider the signs and believe in them. Well, that naturally leads us then to this third barrier. Hard-heartedness, spiritual blindness, and here it is, the worst of all, religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy. It was stubbornness in them that led them to unbelief. A stubbornness to think, a blindness to see, and a hypocrisy that prevented them to accept the need for Jesus. We ought to see that this section, as Jesus launches into these condemnations against the religious leaders, that all of this was meant to be a reminder of the danger of religion, the danger of hypocrisy. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets with whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and, you're, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge." You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. 
Well, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Friends, self-righteousness denies the need for the perfection of Jesus. You see, the problem with these Pharisees wasn't that they were bad guys. You know, so often in popular evangelical circles, you'll, you'll often hear, you know, terms like, don't be a Pharisee. And we have in our minds that they were some, you know, perverse group of men, a bunch of bad guys. Not at all, friend. They were quite good. You would have wanted your, your daughters to date them. They, they were good men. They were, they were great leaders. They were holy. They tried their hardest to please God with their own obedience. They loved the Word. They studied it diligently. It wasn't like they were liberals and they just kind of trashed. No, no. They held God's Word in such great honor and glory that they wanted to make sure that they didn't disobey even little laws. They were as good as they could be, but without God. And friend, that was the frightening place they found themselves. They found themselves in a place where they were as good as humanly possible, but without the power of God. Have you ever been there? Trying your hardest to be your best, while inwardly you're still corrupt? They're going after Jesus because He's breaking their rituals. And again, you might you know, may think, man, I don't know if I'd want Jesus in my house if he's not going to wash his hands before dinner. That's not the point at all of the story. This isn't about hygiene. This is about ritual. That they thought that they could externally clean themselves up enough that they would be acceptable to God. But Jesus reveals the problem wasn't the outside of them, it was the inside of them. And that's so true of those who seek to be self-righteous. That walk around as if everything is put together. That everything is right in their life. How's your marriage? It's great. How's your kids? Oh, they're wonderful. They put an appearance of godliness on. You know, when they pray, they, they act like, you know, they get transported back to 16th century England. And they begin to pray in, you know, King James English. And you're like, wow, that dude must really love God. They put on a show. It was all surface. There wasn't anything inside that they were doing. And the problem with self-righteousness is that ultimately it does not see a need for the perfection of Jesus. We don't need the holiness of Jesus, the imputed righteousness of Jesus, if you and I can be good enough to be acceptable to God. And this is why religious hypocrisy is such a damning place to find oneself. And why then Jesus launches into these three woes. A woe is a warning Whoa, you better slow up, friend. That's what it is. Or you're about to fall over the cliff into 
eternal judgment. It is like Isaiah's woes to the nation of Israel when they were rebelling against God. Jesus here is not condemning them eternally, but warning them if they do not repent, judgment is at hand. Woe to you. We see here in verses 42 through 44, a spiritual hypocrisy among God's people. See, hypocrisy makes you the center of attention. And so Jesus here is seeking to expose them. Uh, He focuses first on their tithing. Notice here, verse 42. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb. So they were going around making sure that they were obeying God by tithing every little thing that they possessed. And and they were commended by Jesus. That's good. It's wonderful. You ought to be doing those things. You ought to be sacrificially noticing that everything is from God and, and worshiping and honoring Him. But you neglect the greater which is love and justice. They thought they could get by on the bare minimum. And we've talked about this before. Legalism seeks to lower the bar so that everyone can get over it. This is what, why they were hypocrites. They were lowering the standard that they could make it over because no one can be righteous the way God is righteous. And so uh, they had to change the standard. They had to change the law. All they needed to do was tie the little small thing, but they were neglecting the big things. The second woe comes in their pride. They love the best seats. They loved to be the center of attention. When they gathered on the Sabbath day, it was, it was them who was to be praised. Notice here, they wanted the best seat in the synagogue. They had a, they had a special seat where everybody could see them. They go, wow, look how righteous they are. Look, kids, that's who you want to be. That's who you want to grow up and be like. Look at them. They, they wanted to, to, to greet everybody. They wanted everybody to acknowledge them. Wow, here they come. Look at them. It was a spiritual pride. They were the center of worship when the people of God gathered. And lastly, there in verse 44, they were exposing God's people to uncleanness rather than cleansing. You might say, well, what is happening here? What is Jesus trying to go after them here? Unmarked graves. If, if one of God's people came in contact with the dead, it would make them, they would make them ritually unclean. And so an unmarked grave, if you stumbled upon an unmarked grave, then you made yourself unclean. It was an accident. You didn't mean to. You didn't know it was there. And and, and so you were ritually unclean and therefore, for a period, isolated from God's people. And so the very people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who were meant to lead people to God were the very people who were pushing them away from God. This is where hypocrisy leads. And then lastly, if that's not enough, I mean, mean, that poor Pharisee probably said, why did I invite that guy to my house? Uh, He just really ruined the party here. One of the lawyers, we are told, stands up and confronts him. Hey, you're insulting us too. Why Why are you being so mean to us, Jesus? I thought you were all about love. What's the deal? And Jesus then launches into them in three woes. 
The lawyers were burdening the people with rules that they themselves would not follow. Rules that they themselves, they were burdening people. You have to do these things in order to be acceptable to God. And they themselves were saying, nah, that, that's for you, not for us. Ultimately, these lawyers had been convinced that obedience to the law could save them. That is why they didn't need, the, they didn't need Jesus. Because they had access to God apart from Jesus. They were hypocrites. We're told here in this passage that they built monuments to the very people that their fathers killed. I mean, you should imagine for a moment. Their fathers murdered a prophet, and then they built a monument to that prophet. Jesus is saying it makes no sense at all in what you're doing. They do not honor their teaching, but use it for their own benefit. And then lastly, we see, because of this, they have greater condemnation placed upon them. You might find this strange. Why is it fair? It seems unfair, doesn't it? Verse 50. He says to them, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Well, it seems unfair. What does Jesus mean? Why was it that they were being punished for the sins of others? Because they had greater knowledge. And here's the problem, friends. Here's the danger. When you come in contact with Jesus, you have no excuse. You have received greater knowledge than anyone before you. And therefore, at the greater knowledge comes greater judgment. Jesus is saying, you scribes and Pharisees, you lawyers, you should know better. You know your Bible. And you ought to be able to see that I am the eternal Christ, the Son of God. But you, because of your hypocrisy, because of your legalism, you think you can have a relationship with God apart from me, but you can't. And therefore, you will be judged accordingly. And then the last woe comes. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. They were to be the door to lead people to God, but they themselves became the barrier for people to know Him. They were the mediators. They were the ones that held the key that unlocked the secrets, and they held others hostage by it. Friend, that is where hypocrisy leads. I don't need Jesus. I don't need His atoning work. I don't need His imputed righteousness. I don't need His holiness. I can do it spiritually on my own. Friend, I wonder, do you consider yourself good enough? Are you on an endless hamster wheel of self-improvement? Just trying to be better than yesterday? Just trying to be as good as I can be? Friend, jump off that thing now. And jump on to Jesus. Jesus is the one who died the death you deserve. And more than that, was raised that you too might live righteously. One of the great doctrines of the Reformation was the imputation of righteousness. That we are seen as holy and right before God, that our sins are not merely forgiven, praise God, but that we receive the holy, righteous life of Jesus, such that when God sees you, 
By faith in Christ, he sees the righteousness of his Son, and not your unrighteousness, not your unholy life, but the holy life of Jesus. And so the Christian life is not that of self-improvement about obeying laws in order to please God. You are pleased by God. God is pleased in you because you believe in Jesus. And that's it. And even that is a gift of His Spirit. By faith, we believe that the righteousness of Jesus has been given to us and that we find ourselves complete not through our obedience, but through Him who died in our place. So then that changes everything. That means that God hears our prayers not because we pleased Him through our obedience. That means that God welcomes us into heaven not because we we did the best we could do spiritually, but because Jesus died and is raised for us. And that we've been clothed in His righteousness. Friend, you see, a, re- a religious hypocrite has no need for Jesus, for in themselves they can do what is good enough and acceptable enough before God. Is that you today? A hypocrite? Friend, that's why we need to be people of grace, not of hypocrisy. We are saved by grace alone and not by works. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the gospel that we believe. That's the truth that we have come to know and trust. Our goodness is not the basis of our acceptability before God, but it is the imputed righteousness of Christ received by faith in Him. So what about you? Do you trust? Friend, as a Christian this morning, have you grown weary at the unbelief around you? Look, they rejected Jesus and so they will reject you. Do not give up. Do not grow weary. Continue to to trust. Their hard-heartedness only exposes their unreasonableness, their unwillingness to consider rightly the evidence before them. They're spiritually blind they cannot see. They need eyes and so pray, give them eyes to see. Apart from Jesus there is no salvation. Confess, pray, and trust. Augustine would go on to write this statement which I think summarizes well what we've been considering today. This is perhaps the one phrase that Augustine is known most famously for, worthy of being committed to memory. God, you move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Friend, unbelief is a restless place. And until we find all we need in Jesus, we will remain restless. And so come and rest in Him today. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, by Your Spirit, 
to know and believe, to have ears that can hear and eyes that can see. Father, I pray that you would soften our heart of stone. Through the new covenant, we believe that those who have been born again have been given new hearts. The heart of stone has been removed and a heart of flesh has been given. We believe that those who have been born again have eyes to see. Guard us, we pray, from drifting into hypocrisy and there remain to trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ for salvation. For now and for all of eternity, we pray in Christ's name.